0: Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are producing this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngannawal and Ngambri peoples past, present and emerging. Let's go. Welcome to The Familiar Strange. I am Jodie Lee Trember, your familiar stranger for today. Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. So today on the podcast, the third in our special series of science, technology and society episodes, an interview with the legendary Lucy Suchman. Rarely have we had so much buzz leading up to an episode as we did when I announced on our socials that I had just bagged an interview with Professor Suchman at the 4S conference last August in Sydney, which is on Gadigal land, by the way, and I should just take this opportunity to pay my respects to the Gadigal elders while I'm here. And thank them again for welcoming us to country for that fantastic conference. Lucy Suchman is a professor of the Anthropology of Science and Technology at Lancaster University and was the president of the Society for Social Studies of Science, otherwise known as 4S, in 2016-2017. Before coming to academia, though, she was the principal scientist for Xerox's Palo Alto Research Center, exploring the complexities of human-machine interaction. So our conversation ranges from discussions of how annoyingly complicated photocopiers can be, from a purely anthropological perspective, of course, to the fundamental differences between humans and AI, to the ethical conundrums that Google has faced in relation to drone warfare. I think you know when an anthropologist is genuinely committed to interdisciplinary research when she has received awards across fields like computer science, IT, sociology, and of course, anthropology and science and technology studies as well. Yet, as she points out in this episode, even after all of that, she still wonders if she knows enough to really be talking about her research area publicly. That never goes away, apparently. So here it is, myself and Lucy Suchman talking about the complex choreography of interactions between humans and machines. So you worked at Xerox and that was the, the Palo Alto Research Center. That's right. right. Yes. So as an anthropologist, what do you do at a place like Xerox? It's not the typical kind of working environment for an anthropologist, right?
1: That's right, yeah. I was a PhD student at the University of California at Berkeley, and this was in the 1970s. So it was a very political moment in the United States in relation to the war in Vietnam, and also for the discipline of anthropology was doing a lot of reconsideration of its own history, Mm. and because anthropology historically had been somewhat in the service of empire, Mm. um, going out and reporting back on the natives so that they could be administered more effectively and so forth. So there was a lot of critical examination of anthropology going on. There was a book published in the early 70s called Reinventing Anthropology, Mm. and there was a chapter in that book called Studying Up, which was written by a professor at UC Berkeley, Laura Nader. And the argument was basically that anthropologists should shift their orientation to at least to include in the people they studied powerful institutions, elites, not only um, marginalized people, but those who occupy positions of power. Mm. So I was quite taken by that. And I wanted to do something in that vein. I don't think I ever knowingly seen a computer at that point. So this was 1978, 79.
0: It's hard to imagine now, isn't it? <laughs> it's, wow. It really
1: is. There was a research internship program at Xerox Park, as it's called. And then I became a research intern and was supported in doing my own PhD and then stayed for the next 20 years. So I became a member of the research staff. I basically became a researcher there. And my work was mainly engaged with research in human-computer interaction, in artificial intelligence, cognitive science. I was a kind of friendly critic.
0: What kind of things did you need to, or feel that you needed to critique? I was really struck when I first arrived
1: by the whole idea of human-computer interaction. You know, you were saying we take so much for granted, and that's one of the things that we just kind of, it's a commonplace now. Mm. But a lot of my studies had been focused on face-to-face human interaction. You know, there was really interesting work going on in conversation analysis and really close studies of how we co-construct our social relations with each other Mm. and how communication is much more than message passing. You know, I say something and you receive it and then you respond but that we actually, in much more fine-grained kind of choreography, we produce meaning together. Mm. And it's incredibly complex and subtle, and it's very deeply tied into our wider capacities as social beings. So I was quite attuned to that. And I thought, well, isn't this interesting? You know, they're, They're talking about interaction with machines. Well, what if we kind of took that seriously and said, well, what does this look like relative to -to face-to-face human interaction? So my critique was about the ways in which the metaphor of interaction, it was very generative, obviously, it was really inspiring to the computer scientists and designers who were working on it, but it was also in danger, I thought, of misrepresenting, of losing the richness and the complexity of the way that our communication really works. And also this was the moment when artificial intelligence, cognitive science were really coming into their own. So some of my colleagues were creating you know, intelligent interfaces that were supposed to be able to understand us and respond to us. And And so I started to look really closely at the assumptions, really, that informed those projects. And so my critique was about those assumptions and the ways in which I thought they didn't really do justice to the way that communication works between people. And a lot of the everyday struggles that we have with our laptops, and now we have all sorts of ways of working around them, and in a way we kind of understand the limits of these devices, and we work with those limits, but we experience this all the time the differences that really matter <laughs> between us and machines i guess that's that's one of my central interests really
0: so like how do you study interactions between humans and computers yeah
1: the question of how you actually study people interacting with machines is a really interesting and in some ways difficult one the first project that i really did was it, it was initiated by a problem with Actually, a photocopier, so no computing involved at that point. But it, it was a photocopier that was relatively complicated. It had all, a whole bunch of features that were new at the time, like two-sided copying and collating. And, and it had been put together very quickly because the way the market works is that all the you know Xerox, Kodak, the various competitors... They have a kind of an ecology, an ecosystem of machines of different sizes and speeds. And they're all looking at each other to make sure that they're sort of filling all the niches in the market. Mm. And Xerox felt there was a gap, which was kind of between the machines that we're used to using, you know, sort of hallway photocopiers and the really print production size machines. They put out this machine that was kind of in between them. And they got a lot of complaints from their customers, basically, who said, you know, this is like way too complicated. We can't figure out how to use this. And that brought a little delegation of people from the main corporation out to the research center to see whether they could generate any interest in this problem. I was really intrigued by this complaint that the machine was too complicated and so my proposal was, well, you know, maybe what we need to do is start by understanding what people actually mean when they say it's too complicated. Like, what are the experiences that they're really having that lead them to report that trouble? And so I actually went with one of my colleagues, a computer scientist, and we went out and did a bit of field work and we went out to organizations that had installed these machines and we sort of hung around <laughs> and we watched Deep hanging out yeah and we, <laughs> and we watched people come in and to do you know to do some bit of copying they would sort of look at this machine and spend some time trying to figure it out and then they'd put their originals into it and they'd sort of try to press the right buttons and and then they you know press the start button and then something would come out in the output tray that had no relationship to what they thought they had asked for. And uh, so so then, of course, they would turn to us um, (laughs) and say, well, you know, you're from Xerox. And then we would say, oh, well, yeah, we are. But, you know, we're from research. (laughs) We don't actually know anything about this machine either. We're actually trying to figure out what makes it so hard to use. So that really confirmed it was difficult to use, but we were as confused as anybody else. We couldn't see what had gone on in between the beginning and the end of that. So I then suggested that we get one of these machines in the research lab. And then we actually made a bunch of videotapes. And we just invited colleagues. So these were, you know, very, very high-powered computer scientists to, you know, if they had something they wanted to copy, to come in and see if they could make sense out of this machine. And we recorded all of that. And we got a very interesting collection of recordings of people's struggles. But now we had the ability to actually diagnose those, to look closely, to see, ah, okay, this is the point at which there was a divergence, a kind of a falling apart of what the person using the machine thought they were were communicating and what, in a sense, the machine was actually registering. And one of the things we did was we asked people to come in in pairs. And so they would be talking to each other as they were operating the machine. And in their talking to each other, we could get a sense of what they were trying to do. So, you know, I just really used the strategy of saying, well, you know, when I watch this, What is it that allows me to be able to see where things break down? Mm. And why is it that the machine can't see that? Mm. And by asking that question, I began to be able to see in detail the incredible range of resources that I was able to draw on. So it was all the things that people were saying to each other. The machine had no idea about that. And to realize that the only things that the machine registered were actions that people took that actually changed its state. Mm. So they pressed a button, and that was a tiny, tiny subset of all the things, you know, none of the things they were saying, many of the things that they were doing, none of those left any trace in the machine's sensibility in a way. And so I could see that it's as if the the machine was kind of looking at the world through this tiny, tiny pinhole.
0: (laughs) And
1: then infer from that tiny little partial glimpse of of what was going on what it was that people were trying to do. And it, you know, that went wrong a Mm. lot of the time. And and I have to say I've been, you know, following in the 20, 30 years since then the progress in creating conversational machines. Mm. And there's been remarkably little progress, actually. At that point, I got increasingly involved in projects in in artificial intelligence. So the idea of trying to actually model how communication, thought, communication, action in humans works in a way that can be translated into code. You know, again, I think my role there continued to be a kind of critical role. I am very critical of the ways in which I think there's a lot of hype and mystification around the, you know, progress in creating intelligent human-like machines, but also it's kind of consistently trying to re-articulate the differences that I think are still there and that matter. What makes it so hard? How those differences between us and machines make it extremely difficult to create machines that are actually human-like. I mean, I'm always tracking media reports, representations, popular media about robots. I mean, we can think about, you know, recent films like Ex Machina if you've mm, seen that yes. films about humanoid robots and the promise or the the claim on the part of a lot of the enthusiasts for artificial intelligence that you know it's always just about to happen <laughs> and it, that is something that i think really misrepresents the state of the art so if we think about what goes under the name of of ai primarily it's data data analytics big data and that's really about massive networking because now we have these incredible infrastructures and you know we're interconnected and we're connected to the cloud and Mm. google and netflix and everything is monitoring us all the time so there's huge amounts of data there's Faster and faster processing power, bigger and bigger storage capacity, and very clever kind of algorithms for trying to make sense out of those data, put them to work in the interests of various actors. So there's a lot happening there. But in the area of humanoid robotics, kind of robots that are figured in a movie like Ex Machina, practically no progress at all. And I think there are really good reasons for that. (laughs) Mm.
0: So would you say that those reasons are related to the relative power of a human compared to the relative power of an algorithm or a system?
1: Yeah, and it's a particular kind of power or capability. So if we just look at, at robots for a moment, they're effective just to the extent that the worlds they have to operate in can be engineered in relation to them. Mm-hmm. So, so the assembly line is the perfect example. You can engineer the robot and what it's going to have to deal with in the world, and you can adjust that. But as soon as you have a robot that's actually operating in an open-ended environment, then everything changes. And the capacity that we have, all of the capabilities that are so taken for granted in our everyday lives, just our ability to move through the world and deal with the kinds of contingencies that arise and recognize what's going on around us and adjust ourselves, even if it's, you know, walking across the street and Mm. not bumping into each other. Mm. um, It's really easy to underestimate how much capability is required to actually be able to do that. Mm. And for us, you know, that's the outcome of a very very, very long evolutionary <laughs> a very long process of iterative development mm. And you know the way that AI and, and robotics generally tend to work is they like to decompose things into speech, vision, navigation, emotion, even as a separate kind of component. Mm. But for us those things are all incredibly interrelated. So that's where I think the resistance comes.
0: And I wonder how much of our ability to adapt is our ability to make them do the things we want to do. I mean, what struck me in the story you were telling before about watching the the people try and work out the photocopier and then realizing that you couldn't see what was going wrong. And so then enrolling the video camera <laughs> into your task. Absolutely. To, and then it was actually the entanglement of you and the video camera that allowed you to really hone in on what was going on and find out yes what was going wrong so I mean machines don't tend to make decisions like that
1: (laughs) yeah and that's part of you're continually involved in reconfiguring the world along with other people whether it's in relation to other people whether it's in relation to the artifacts and other kinds of you know material built environments that you live and work in the continual adjustment and readjustment, and, as you say, enrolling things, figuring out how things can be reconfigured so that new possibilities arise. That kind of inventiveness, mm. again, is I think, another one of those those elusive <laughs> qualities <laughs> thats very, very hard to reproduce. Mm. Yeah,
0: okay, so what kind of power do the kinds of AI that you're describing that are incredibly powerful and that have, really taken off in the last 20 years. What is that power?
1: It's a power that's very much tied to the things that computing machines are good at, which is creating categories, sorting things. And so if we think about a database has a bunch of fields that need to be filled in, and if those fields can be filled in in ways that produce some kind of useful information, that can be put to work in various ways.
0: And it's that work that's really critical there, isn't it? Because, I mean, filling in forms sounds really mundane, but actually there are massive consequences for some sets of categorization that computers
1: can do. Absolutely. So I think one of the things that a lot of people are concerned about is the degree to which so much of our everyday lives now are affected by the kinds of profiling that are done through systems like banking systems and systems having to do with citizenship with migration the visas that we, you know, the online visas that we now fill out to come to Australia if we're not from Australia. (laughs) Yeah, but, oh, well, I'm from the United States. You have nothing to apologize for. (laughs) But so there are increasing biometrics, for example, where there's a proliferation of ways that we're being registered in these systems and then in various ways monitored tracked, you know, if we think about what it means to be using GPS, we think about how incredibly useful it is to be tracked by Google, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) by networks that then know our location and then can connect that location data to all sorts of other data. Mm. Overwhelmingly for purposes of trying to sell us things, um, capture our attention, tell us you know what restaurants are around us, what movies we might want to watch. And a company like Google, its business model is basically to monetize our attention So the more we find these technologies to be useful, the more we are enrolled in basically relying on the kinds of recommendations, ranking systems, and so forth. And so more and more of our our everyday lives are being organized through those sorts of systems, which are the systems of sorting, registration and sorting and classification that make data analytics possible for better and worse. And depending on who we are, how uh, vulnerable we are, then that can be either a great convenience or it can be tremendously damaging and injurious in various ways.
0: it was earlier this year in May, you wrote an article asking Google, in in collaboration with Google's employees, asking them to cease their relationship with drone warfare, right, essentially, right? right? Can you talk us through Project Maven? Sure. This is
1: beginning to happen in, I think, some really interesting ways. A group of Google employees learned that Google had entered into a contract with the U.S. Defense Department to work on helping to automate the analysis of drone surveillance footage. So the U.S. now has a massive system of drone surveillance, particularly over places like Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, Somalia, Yemen, parts of the world that the U.S. sees as occupied by the so-called terrorist organizations that pose a threat. So there's now an ongoing massive network of drone surveillance that produces impossible amounts of video footage, video recording. So that infrastructure of surveillance and of data gathering has greatly surpassed the possibility of human analysts to actually make any sense of it or put it to any kind of use. So... The Defense Department's idea was to enroll companies like Google in helping them develop automated analytics that would review this footage and tag footage in which certain classes of objects were recognized by the machine. So, arguably, you would have footage where certain kinds of vehicles, and and of course, This system doesn't know anything about vehicles. Mm. What it knows about is shapes. (laughs) But if you're clever enough, you can specify the coordinates of the shapes that are being rendered through this surveillance footage in a way that a machine can identify all of the footage in which a shape like that appears so if the Defense Department can specify certain shapes that they take to be vehicles of a certain kind, buildings of a certain kind, and possibly even human activities of a certain kind, wow. then you can run all of this footage through automated analytic engines. And the argument, and of course Google said, the point of this is to extract from that a subset of footage that will then be handed to human analysts to review. But of course, all of this requires, again, the creation of classes of machine-recognizable objects. And we know that the U.S. drone program and the U.S., the so-called counterterrorism program of the U.S., already relies on very, arguably, very crude forms of profiling. There are many incidents where civilians, non combatants have been killed because drone operations took certain kinds of gatherings on the ground, certain kinds of activities going on on the ground as indicative of some kind of threat when it turned out that they were weddings or mm. people just going about their everyday lives. Yeah. So we have a massive amount of evidence for how problematic the recognition is on the part of humans within the drone program. And the idea of taking a program that's already based on very questionable modes of identification, and even, arguably, there are a lot of questions about the legality, which I certainly share about the legality of the U.S.'s targeted killing program. Automating that just seems like a really bad idea. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and, and it was very troubling to people in Google. Ultimately, about 4,000 Google employees signed a letter to the CEO saying, this is not what we signed up for. We came to Google because we thought it was a company that had certain values. Very famously, Google's sort of had within its code of ethics you know, don't be evil, which is actually a very low bar, but yeah. nonetheless, <laughs> and yet, <laughs> you know, it was taken as indicative of a company that had a, a commitment to, mm. to certain kinds of benevolent forms of, of practice. So, this mobilization among Google employees, one of those employees reached out to my colleague Lily Irani, who is an academic. She works at the University of California, but she's also very connected with tech workers' networks. And they said, do you think that you could organize an academic letter statement in support of what we're doing? And so I became involved with that. It produced collective action and the media interest in this produced enough bad PR for Google that they announced that they would not renew their contract for this project.
0: How long is the contract?
1: I believe the current contract goes until next year. So, you know, they didn't say they would immediately cease and desist, but they said they would not renew it. In some ways, it's a very small victory. But I do think it's significant that the employees felt empowered. This is very, very rare in American corporations, that employees would organize to protest the politics of something That the corporation was doing. And so I think in some ways it does come out of a certain ethos at Google where Google has always encouraged its employees to speak up, has represented itself as a a force for good. And so this, you know, significant number of workers are kind of calling Google to account on Mm. that. And I think that's kind of caught on. There have been other mobilizations now within the tech industry by workers around various issues. And so I think it's a really, again, a small thing, but a a really important development.
0: And I think small thing in terms of perhaps the movement that Google made, but I mean, for the people who don't get bombed because the program ends next year, I mean, that's a very big thing in their lives. And I was really struck in a particular line in a lecture that you had online, it was from an ad and it was about how this particular drone was the best possible technology for keeping humans safe. Yes. So, yeah. Let's talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, actually, it, the image that
1: I think you're recalling that I've used in lectures was of a controller. So, it was a controller for a remotely controlled robot weapon, basically. Right. And yes, the claim was, you know, isn't this wonderful that remote control keeps humans safe? Now, all you have to do is recognize that this is referring to only certain humans. Mm -hmm. The assumption is that the humans that matter are those who are involved in U.S. military operations. And it completely dehumanizes the humans, who are, of course, the objects, the targets of these weapon systems. And that's really indicative of a much wider problem in U.S. militarism, in the ways in which the valorization of us and the dehumanization of them underpins the ongoing operations of the U.S. military. So this is a a very frequent claim. For drones that they allow precision and the fantasy is that there are clearly unambiguously identifiable bad guys mm. out there and this is a very you know powerful mentality for certain
0: <laughs> There's lots of video game kind of discussion yeah, around this stuff.
1: Yeah. Right? It's you know, it's as if people are running around with their little bad guy label. But there is a kind of at least among some members of, of the US population and, and the US military, this unquestioned idea that we're the good guys and we know who the bad guys are. Whereas mm-hmm. when we look at the actual conditions of contemporary war fighting, the opposite is true. Things have never been less clear in terms of who the good guys are, who the bad guys are. So if we really want to keep humans safe, the only way to do that is through alternatives Mm. to violent conflict. Yeah. (laughs) You know, we we need creative forms of diplomacy, which has been so neglected because it's not profitable in the way that weapons production is. And again, the, the Google Resistance to Project Maven led to a number of editorials that I've seen in U.S. newspapers by pro military people saying that Google workers have basically undermined a project that was going to save civilian lives. Wow. And the only way you can believe that drone operations save civilian lives is if you have the fantasy that the only lethal force that's used is on people who deserve to die. Mm. And if we don't have any due process, we have one of the fundamental problems with the targeted killing program is that it completely circumvents any kind of due process. People have no opportunity to plead their case. They're summarily executed. So I have no faith in the justice of that. (laughs) And I certainly have no faith that automating the analysis of drone footage is going to somehow increase the justice of that. Mm. Um, but again, that's a very powerful mindset among many, you know, not just Americans, but anyone who thinks that they know who the good guys are and who the bad guys are and that they have a right to mete out justice unilaterally.
0: So this is your key research area now, is that correct? Yeah. So... How do you research this? What do you do to get at this data?
1: Yeah, well, that's a really good question. And it's a dilemma for me because I'm an anthropologist and I believe that, you know, the deepest understandings that we get come from really direct and immersive and long term engagement with the things in the world that we care about. And so here I am in a situation where I've spent my life really. Distancing myself as much as possible from the U.S. military. So I'm in a very steep learning curve and also facing a lot of challenges in terms of how I locate myself. And so in this case, my research has been more based on secondary sources. There's a growing, very, very rich body of scholarship about how militarism works and a lot of fantastic investigative journalism about U.S. military operations so it's a combination of of much more sort of working with those kinds of sources and thinking about them through the the kind of sts lens that mm. that informs my way of understanding the world and then i've also been doing some work on a immersive training simulation program for the military beginning to see that training is so crucial because that's really where the the ways of seeing the world that inform The U.S. military, when they're deployed, those ways of seeing the world are being crafted through the training process. Mm. Uh, So there are some interesting experiments, again, going back to the kind of research, computer research environments that I am familiar with and know a lot about some of those environments are engaged in attempting to create using virtual reality and animation and graphics to create training simulations. And so I've got an archive of a particular project from the University of Southern California. And I've been working with that archive and trying to take it as a starting place and sort of following out the leads that come out of that to understand more about how militarism really gets created, I guess, and
0: you have to be quite careful about what you say in order to be able to continue this research. Like, the military's not going to be happy with you if you're criticizing them, right?
1: Obviously, I'm not in a position where I'm exposed to classified information of any kind. I'm not in a position that whistleblowers, <laughs> you know, I'm Thank not goodness. a Snowden or a. Yeah. <laughs> so, I think I'm in a pretty safe position. And I think in a way as an academic, you know, and in a way as a U.S. citizen, I mean, one of the things that I do appreciate about the United States is that you can be pretty outspoken in your opposition. Mm. And relative to a lot of places in the world, you can do that safely, particularly if you're not otherwise vulnerable. So I think actually... Someone like myself, who's a senior academic U.S. citizen, we're in a pretty safe place to speak out about these things. So I worry more. I don't know enough that I'm, <laughs> that my understanding of the things that I'm engaged in in critique of isn't deep enough. And damn, so um,
0: those thoughts never go away. <laughs> huh? They never do. Come oh, on, no. <laughs> you okay. just have to. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's a real shame. (laughs) Um, I I realise we're we're coming up to the end of our time. You mentioned STS Mm -hmm. and we are currently at the Forest 2018 Conference in Sydney recording this. Could you talk us through what STS is as a discipline and what defines it, what categorises it, what makes it different to other disciplines?
1: Sure, sure. The letters stand for Science and Technology Studies. I think one of the things that draws a lot of us to STS is that it, it's very much an interdiscipline. So it's a field that brings together people who are interested in historical and contemporary and to a large extent critical, not in the sense of negative, but critical in the sense of, of questioning received assumptions in the worlds of, of science and technology. Medicine is a, big, is a big area as well. And people come to the field of STS from... Many different disciplines. I come from anthropology, many people come from sociology, politics, communications, organization studies, information studies, and it's a place where the shared subject matter, our interests in the consequences, the implications of science and technology, and the ways in which Science and technology are always deeply social and political. We come together around that shared interest from a lot of different directions, and that's part of what makes it very dynamic and really, you know, a very sort of lively and continually changing field.
0: What does it mean for science and technology to be Social and what does it mean for it to be political?
1: Mm -hmm. The field of STS originally was really focused on the natural sciences. There, the idea was to show how, in a way, the things that we take to be the facts of the natural world were really the product of a lot of social practices in the sense of actively rendering the world coherent and intelligible in some ways and not in others. Somewhat later, Technology also became part of this. Initially, it wasn't really considered to be particularly interesting because, of course, everybody knows that technology is social. I mean, artifacts are produced by humans. But really how artifacts are produced and how deeply the political economies out of which particular kinds of technologies are produced, whose interests are written into technologies, what consequences do technologies have and differentially for different people. And that's really what I mean by politics. It's kind of politics with a small p, Mm. that there are always relations of power, of differentially distributed power relations that are an integral part of technology design production use that are inextricably tied up with the kinds of political economies that we're part of, commodity capitalism. And so questions about whose knowledges inform the production of technologies, whose interests are served, who benefits. What um, would we
0: say that would be in the case of something like photocopies?
1: <laughs> yeah, they see, they're very benign. They uh, seem <laughs> mundane and
0: yet we know they're not. Well, we
1: know they're not we could look at the histories out of which photocopiers come, histories of imaging technologies. We could look at how photocopiers have been taken up in a multitude of ways. And, you know, They've been integral to many forms of political resistance around the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, so the multiplicity of technologies, the the flexibility is part of what's interesting. A lot of the work in STS has been working against any sense of what we call technological determinism, the idea that any technology can and will only be used in one way. We, mm. we know that's not true. There's unintended. an enormous amount of, for better and for worse, mm. unintended or unanticipatable consequences. So it's kind of staying with that, tracking that, articulating that.
0: Mm. I can't imagine Xerox ever imagined that they were going to spark an entire generation of people taking their pants down and sitting on photocopier <laughs> screens yes exactly <laughs> exactly
1: and i think that you know that was a phase we might say hopefully <laughs>
0: hopefully we're past although
1: it. i don't think it's that we've you know really outgrown it it's more that there are now new media
0: through which yeah, <laughs> <true. laughs> to do the same ridiculous things but on a grander scale <laughs> this is true that was so interesting. Thank you so much. You're, very,
1: you're very welcome. Thank you're you. Very welcome.
0: So that was it, me and Professor Lucy Suchman. Today's episode was produced by me, Jodie Lee Trembath, with help from the other familiar strangers, Dr. Julia Brown, Simon Theobald, and our newest member, Kylie Dolan, who you'll meet on upcoming panels as she will be taking over from Ian now that he has officially moved to Indonesia. And our executive producers are Deanna Caddo and Matthew Fung. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange Podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes and dislikes. It helps people to find the show, and it helps us make the show better. Even better. Come join our new Facebook group by searching the Familiar Strange Chats into your Facebook search bar. We've just been having a fascinating debate over there about the burning of Notre Dame with new member Death and Taxes. Great name there. And another one off the back of our most recent panel trying to decide what a person is and what violence is. Look, it's a safe space to have opinions and chat about all things culture and society. So do come on over. We would love to meet you. You can find the show notes, including a list of books, papers and other media mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you haven't yet checked out our latest blog from Professor Emma Cavall about activist anthropology, you should get on that. It's a cracker. If you want to contribute to the blog or if you have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com or tweet at TFSTweets. Look us up on Facebook and Instagram or, again, come chat to us on our Facebook group. Our music's by Pete Dabro. Special thanks today to Nick Farrelly, Martin Pierce, Will Grant and Woodrow. Thanks for listening. Catch you in two weeks' time. And until then, keep talking strange.